VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? People are allowed to be offensive. Speech naturally offends. This is the whole point. Like, I have to be able to say things which offend other people. There isn't a world where there's safe speech. It just doesn't exist. It's a meaningless term. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. This week, we take you to Nashville. Nashville, I hear you saying? Yes, Nashville, because that is where George Farmer lives. And George is the CEO of a little social media startup called Parlor. Now, you may remember about a year and a half ago, we had on John Mates, who was the founder of Parler. And Parler, of course, is this, you know, social media, you know, micro-blogging site. Kind of think of it as Twitter, but for conservatives and kind of extreme right folks. And John and I had a very spirited discussion about the company, free speech, cancel culture, all of it. And what happened was a few months after that interview, January 6th happened. And Parler was deplatformed. It was kicked out of the App Store. AWS basically canceled their contracts so they didn't have any servers to run on. Parler went poof and Mates was fired. Now, Farmer, who is from the UK, took over as CEO last year. And this month, he's raised 20 million bucks to help kind of rebuild the company and really bring it back from the ashes, the phoenix rising, etc. Um, and so I wanted to have him on just to understand what the big idea is because parlor as you may recall really has a kind of an anything goes attitude toward content whether that's hate speech or covid misinformation or wild conspiracies whatever it may be and farmer it should be noted is also married to candace owens who is a huge fan of trump she's an anti-vaxxer kind of a rising media star on the right who was kicked off of facebook and is now suing facebook over that case so he obviously has seen this up close and personal and owens of course is uh, perhaps most known for her views about black people and their allegiance to the democrats owens herself is black um, and she said african americans have a kind of a plantation mindset toward democrats so that is obviously very controversial but what Farmer is doing at Parlor is trying to kind of create an antidote uh, to what he calls the big tech censorship. 
um, that his wife and many uh, folks that he says on the right are experiencing. And it's just a really, it's an interesting business question because, of course, he's starting from scratch and, you know, Twitter has 300 million odd users. And so that's a very steep hill to climb. So he's trying to do that. And he's also doing it kind of centered around this idea of like maximum free speech. And it gets into very interesting, difficult questions around where you draw the line, around what is allowable, what isn't, who draws those lines, how are they enforced? You know, these big issues that big tech has been wrestling with and often failing at for years now. And so Parler sees an opportunity there and Farmer is trying to basically step into that void with Parler and create this new kind of entity uh, to serve what he says um, is, you know, a big need. So it just gets into a lot of these very vexing issues that have been hounding big tech and Silicon Valley, basically going back to before Trump's election. uh, And we appear no closer to kind of figuring out the model here. But anyhow, I think you're really going to enjoy the conversation. We get into all of that stuff and more. So with that, I will step aside and hand you over to my conversation with George Farmer of Parlor. Enjoy. Cool. Where are you calling from? Where are you right now? Um, I live in Nashville. Nashville? Yeah, there you go. But you didn't expect that one. Of all the places in America. So actually, I have a friend who sold his, you know, nice but very normal house for an obscene amount of money in California and moved to Nashville and now lives on an estate. He's like, I'm embarrassed <laughs> by how big my house is because he just took his California real estate money and then moved there. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. It's, uh, But then again, you know, your bang for your buck in Nashville is actually decreasing because the prices are rising so fast that you're soon going to be, you know, on par. Oh, really? With, uh, yeah, I mean, everyone's moving here. It's like crazy. It's It's like Miami. It's the same kind of vibe right now. How did you end up there? Well, my wife works for the Daily Wire or works with the Daily Wire and they relocated here from LA. And so we lived in DC beforehand. So right, right, we had right. no particular reason to stay there. And, you know, it's a better it's a better state in terms of there's a bit more countryside here. And then there's also yeah. lower taxation here, which is nice. So all these combined factors, we were like, yeah, let's go to Nashville. So we moved here. Well, look, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. No worries. So, Parlor, <laughs> can you just explain how you ended up getting involved? Sure. I mean, it was more by accident than design, I guess. I mean, I was aware of Parlor as a business before Parlor kind of hit the national conversation, I guess. You know, it started in 2018. I was aware of it because my involvement with kind of US politics and British politics, there was some overlap there and I'd heard of the company. And so as a result, I'd started a Parler account in 2019, I think very early days, 2019, when the company was still kind of in its infancy. I then sort of tracked its progress, I guess, a little bit, you know, not as anything more than just an interested observer to see how this kind of idea of a free speech platform, social media network would work whether or not it would even take off. And, you know, obviously by 2020 that had exploded and then the platform had started to grow. It then obviously went from being kind of a, you know, a background social media app to kind of a front foreground social media app. And on the back of that, you know, I witnessed its deplatforming, I guess, in kind of real time, obviously. Uh, I think we all did at the time, you know, from a social media perspective. And on the back end of that, you know, I had a conversation with Rebecca Mercer, and we were actually were talking about other 
topics we didn't mention really, Paula, but she mentioned, you know, that there was some need to kind of work on Parler. And so I volunteered my services and said, I'd be happy to do that, to look at it, to see whether I could help restructure the business. And for people, because we have a lot of overseas listeners, a lot back in the UK, the Mercer family is very powerful, kind of deep pocketed family in conservative Republican politics and media. Yeah. So I then stepped in at the beginning of March of last year to try and help restructure the business. And that was kind of my initiation into Parler. That was where I really began my sort of career here. And on the back of that, I had a look at the company. There was a lot there was a lot of work which needed doing. So you came in last, sorry, last March, which was, was that right after John Maids was fired? John was out on the 29th of January of last year, if I recall correctly. Right. Right, right, right. Um, so I was about six weeks, I would say, after that. So he gets fired, and then so was that. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting my chronology a bit jumbled, but the the deplatforming of Parler by Apple and AWS and everybody else that had already happened as well, or what happened right around right before you got there? Yeah, timeline of events was January the sixth. You know, riots in Washington D.C. Yeah, January the tenth, Amazon, Google, and Apple exile parlor into the digital wilderness january the 29th john left as ceo and then my exact start date i can't really remember which day it was it was quite a quite a loose amalgamation of uh, corporate structure at the time <laughs> uh, but it would have yeah. been sometime at the beginning of march right got you and then i, I stepped in at that into the role as as acting operating officer to try and help provide some structure and uh, flow to the business and then by may that role had sort of evolved to me kind of taking it over to continue the work that we'd already begun. And so subsequently, I think May 17th was my sort of first official day as CEO. And then that was obviously to to where we are now and the rest, as they say, is kind of history. Right. And so before we get to all the things that you have done since you have arrived at Parlor, I just wanted to kind of go backwards and talk a little bit about like where you grew up, kind of what your background was that brought you to Nashville, Tennessee, running Parlor. Um, so... Where where did you grow up? I grew up in London. So I went to school in London, born and raised in London. Yeah, I mean, London is my hometown. I still still go back there pretty frequently, I would say. Both my parents still live there. You know, went to university in the UK, graduated there, went into finance. You were at Cambridge, correct? Oxford, yeah. Oxford, um, my bad. Yeah, yeah, that's a major mistake. Yeah, it's fine. I know. I, Jesus. I, I'll, I'll forgive you Terrible. once, but uh, not again. Um <laughs> And you studied theology. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I studied theology. Then graduated, went into investment banking. I worked for uh, Jefferies International, which is a US-based bank. They're quite big in clean tech and energy and and healthcare. I then went to join my dad, who ran a hedge fund. That's Red Kite. That was Red Kite. Yeah, that's right. Um, Right. And I worked for him or worked with him, kind of working my way up through the firm for seven to eight years. And so was there and then basically, you know, ended up as a partner there and running the trading operation to some extent from the particularly physical trading operation. We were commodities based hedge funds. So right. focused on physical shipments of, of copper, particularly nickel, aluminum, as the Americans would say, or aluminium, as we say back home. Aluminium, yes. Yeah. And so, you know, that was kind of our bent, you know, had quite a long, well, commodities is a very interesting industry. 
still fascinates me to this day. I still keep an eye on the markets there because I find them very interesting. From my previous job, all those years in London, most of them were spent covering commodities. So I've seen the copper mines in the Congo and, you know, the oil fields in Iraq and all that kind of stuff and know all the uh, the Glencores and VTOLs and all the those folks in that world. Yeah. So, I mean, I had my fair share of corporate spas with, uh, with Glencore and Trafigur over the I'm years. I'm sure you did. Anyway, so that was kind of, that was my, my twenties in many ways. At the same time as I was doing that, you know, started kind of doing my own private investing. My dad and I did a lot of private investing in, I would say specifically the kind of clean tech and the technology sector separately. So, you know, just a more diversified portfolio than focusing exclusively on commodities, which was kind of a lot of our focus in the main hedge fund. Started doing some more investing outside of that, you know, spurred my interest, I guess, in technology. Aside from that, of course, it was a very hot sector at the time. A lot of my friends were working in the industry. So, you know, we probably had about a dozen companies in the clean tech, tech space. We had one or two businesses, you know, which were still in the media space and healthcare. So that was kind of, you know, what I was doing alongside of that. It was a pretty busy time, pretty busy investment period, pretty busy investment years. But then that really all kind of changed, I guess, when I moved over to the US in 2019. What brought you out here? Well, you know, the pursuit of a good woman, I guess. Uh, <laughs> uh, my now wife. So we met in London at the end of 2018 and we were engaged pretty shortly after that. I, the story uh, is no secret to those who have followed our life online. So it's, uh, you know, I think we were engaged three weeks after that. Three weeks after meeting. Three weeks after meeting. That's right. Yeah. I, I knew it was fast. I didn't think I realized it was three weeks. That's. That's impressive. Yeah, it was fast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, got to lock down a good thing when you see it. You know, that's, uh, yeah. that's my that's my opinion. Um, so, yeah, we met December, um, engaged by January, and then you know, basically, I started to migrate my life over here after that. And at the same time, you know, it became very difficult to kind of maintain you know an active participation, I guess, in the London commodities markets. Plus, the markets themselves had changed substantially, and there was kind of a great deal of the markets had traded sideways for a while. I was changing my life. I came over to the US. Um, so at that point, I kind of stepped back from that role and moved more into kind of, I guess, the forefront of what is called the US political sphere. And by proxy, of course, to my wife, who's very active in politics, but also because I was helping her set up her foundation. Right. And just in case people don't know, your wife is Candace Owens, who's a very prominent figure in on the Republican side of kind of media politics. I would say she's like a firebrand type of commentator. <laughs> Some would definitely use those words. Yes. Yeah. That's kind of where I ended up in 2019. And then, you know, in 2020, that again evolved into kind of helping her set up her foundation. I'm, I still serve as the treasurer of that group, but I was doing a lot of the operational uh, infrastructure of that, getting it up from, from a nothing group, as it were, or an idea to actually being a business. And also sort of finding out quite a lot more, I guess, there's a very different political culture. There's a very different political corporation, I would almost describe it as, in America as there is in the UK. In the UK, politics is widely talked about, but there isn't really anywhere near the same, there just isn't the same powerhouse industry as it really is over here. No. And so I was sort of getting more involved in that, seeing just exactly how the whole situation worked and how the whole... I guess, how the whole sphere in America worked, you know, and of course, it was a highly contentious year. And there was a lot going on, both nationally, and also at a political level, you obviously had the election, but then also you had COVID, you had BLM, 
So this kind of narrative was developing whilst I was really in my first 12 months within the US. And then in the UK, you were also involved in Brexit, correct? Yeah, I was. That's right. I mean, if you want to trace how I knew about my wife before I knew my wife, it was because I was involved in UK politics. So I personally was a big backer of the Brexit party, of Nigel Farage. Financially or in what sense? So I gave quite a bit of money to the Brexit party. I think it was about 200,000. I supported them over the course of a couple of years or the course of a year, I guess, because they weren't really around for longer than that. And then also, you know, I'd been a big backer of Brexit. I'd supported various Brexit causes and tried to lend my weight where I could behind the Brexit campaign in its manifestations as it occurred between 2016 when the vote occurred and 2020 when we actually left or 2021 when we actually left, should I say. So, you know, that immersion into US politics made me more aware of what was going on in the US. I'd always been politically aware of what was going on in the US, but the symbiosis between the transatlantic political spheres is obviously enhanced when you are very much involved in it. And so I'd heard of Candace before I met Candace, and then we sort of met through the political sphere. And then on the back of that, you know, we obviously ended up getting married. And wasn't Nigel Farage kind of in the middle of all of this somehow? (laughs) <laughs> uh, not really, to be honest. I mean, no, Nigel is, of course, a great friend. And he was at our wedding. He gave the toasts. Your wedding at uh, Eric Trump's winery. Correct. That's right. Yeah. We got married in Virginia in 2019. Did you guys have Trump wine at the wedding? You have to. You have to. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. If you have a wedding at the Trump winery, you have to have Trump wine. How was Trump wine? Be honest. It was, it was pretty good, actually. They have a new world blend, which is pretty good. Not that I profess to be you know, an expert wine right. drinker, but it's, uh, it was pretty good, which is unusual because Virginian wines are not something you often hear about. Well, this is why I was asking a Virginian winery, a Trump Virginian winery doesn't scream like, oh, this is the good stuff. Look, I mean, you're based out of Oakland. I mean, it's, it's Napa is just north of you. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm not sure it's going to compete with the, uh, the Opus One. Uh, but you know, I, I'm sure that I'm sure it's very, it was very passable as we say in the UK. Right, right, right. So then I ended up over here. Um, and that was kind of then my initiation into parlor began in 2021. So what's the big idea with parlor now in 2022, you're running it, you know, the Mercers are obviously big backers. You have Dan Bongino, who's, you know, another really fiery, I would say kind of extreme personality on the right. What is the goal of Parler and what was the problem before? Okay, well, I'm going to separate that that question a little bit because there's a few things which you kind of packaged up there. So yep. what's the goal of Parler? And then I'll talk about the shareholders if you want, because I think that that's relevant as well. So yes, the goal and role of Parler remains to this day to be a free speech platform. That is its mission statement, to allow individuals to creatively empower themselves in a free speech environment, right? That is how we position ourselves. And that remains to this day exactly what we want to appeal to. We want to allow people to have a voice online in a setting where they are not censored, right? When it comes to the shareholders, all of the shareholders buy into that mission, right? Irrespective of what the shareholders do outside of their shareholding in parlor is kind of not my concern. And I don't really, you know, I don't pick up the phone every day and sort of call them up and be like, Hey, you know, you said this statement, this is pretty, this is whatever it is, you know, whether this is firebrand or whatever it might be, they are the shareholders. They support that mission goal and statement. 
And the shareholders are the Mercers, Dan Bongino. Is there anybody else that, who are the other big backers? Or? Well, I mean, that's private information. Yeah, I mean, it's a private company. I don't have to disclose yeah. who they are. But you've obviously named some of them. I mean, you know, those people are well-known supporters of the organization. And, and I'm sure, you know, they would agree with what I've just said, which is that they support the organization because of its free speech mission. So obviously implicit is that in that is that the rest of social media, there's a problem with it. Yeah. What's the problem? <laughs> the problem remains that you have organizations now, which are the gatekeepers to the online world mm -hmm. that are effectively diverting the course of conversation into narratives that they have a pre-approved or considered to be the kind of correct forums for debate, right? That doesn't feel true because <laughs> I know that that is the narrative, especially you know, politically, we have a kind of a divided house in my family. So half my family loves Fox News and half, half my family hates Fox News. But I can swim in both waters in terms of like, I see what is happening on both sides. And there's this like real kind of victim mentality on the right. But it's also proven time and again that, you know, the most incendiary conservative or right wing personalities or posts, they're the ones that get the most traction on Facebook on Twitter, on YouTube. So this idea that they're somehow being stifled and there's other issues to get to, but that as a basic assumption does not. Well, so I think there's several areas of the debate and breaking it down, you can kind of expand, I can expand on what I'm saying. So first of all, there is the, and Cara Swisher raised this point with me when I did an interview with her a few weeks ago. And she said, you know, studies have shown that you know, the right has more free expression. Well, the loudest voices on the right are still censored, even though they are the loudest voices. And I know that to be the fact because- What do you mean? Well, for example, like my wife is, you know, she is still censored on Facebook, right? So to say that the the major leaders on the Why right- Why was don't she censored? Sorry? Or the, what, what reason did they give for censor? I mean, so what for example, was like in 2020, Facebook's fact checkers applied several labels to her posts, which were talking about COVID, right? And at uh -huh. the time, you know, this emerging field, if you like, of COVID misinformation, quote unquote, was, yeah. you know, at the forefront of the national conversation. Now, she was censored. Do you remember what she said or what was the thing that the straw that broke the camel's back? Uh, well, I mean, if you want the exact details, I would recommend looking at the lawsuit that's be that's been filed in Delaware. So we filed a lawsuit against Facebook's fact checking companies in the in Delaware court. And that's now been right. sent up to the Delaware Supreme Court for appeal. And there were numerous instances where people where she was quoting CDC statistics to counteract the, the prevailing narrative. Now in that instance there was censorship which was taking place because they said this is missing context, right? So that is just one example. There are many examples of leading conservative figures who have been censored. Now, does that mean that it's just conservatives who are censored? No, it doesn't. There are other people on the left yeah. and the right who are censored, right? Does it mean that the issues relating to censorship are partisan? No, it doesn't always mean that. There are plenty of issues. For example, COVID, and I, I can use this as, a, as an example because I think it's relevant, mm. COVID, in theory, should be a nonpartisan issue. It shouldn't have anything to do with left or right. Now, the fact that epidemiology and mask wearing has clearly become political does lend itself to the conversation as to how censorship has been applied to COVID misinformation, quote unquote, right? So have figures on the right been censored? Yes. Have figures on the left been censored? Yes. 
is it all in relation to COVID? Yes, it is, right? So, mm-hmm. for example, like, are we moving beyond the traditional bounds of saying the right is censored, the left is censored? Yes, we are. Because when you have people like Naomi Klein, who was a former advisor to Bill Clinton, being kicked off Twitter or banned from Twitter permanently because of her opinion about COVID, that's neither left nor right anymore. That's just about yeah. that's just about a kind of central opinion which she's expressing. So perhaps one could say that the conversation about censorship has evolved. It used to be, I would say, a feeling felt more prevalently on the right. Right now, that feeling, whether it was accurate or not accurate was certainly voiced many many times by people on the right right and it was people saying we feel like we are being censored it's not just the loudest voices it's plenty of smaller voices too right and those smaller voices never get counted or never get heard right the second point is that that conversation has now evolved right the censorship debate is now no longer just about right and left it's actually now about points of view and opinions which don't traditionally fall within either camp, right? So censorship has now become far more prevalent and relevant than just saying, I'm a Republican, therefore I'm going to get censored, right? It's now about saying things like, am I allowed to post information about the vaccine or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And so if we're in a place, as you say, where, you know, people on both sides of the spectrum, let's say, are getting censored, what is the goal of Parler? Because I, you know, uh, we had John Mates on here, whenever it was, a year and a half ago. I have a Parler account, so I can kind of tool around and see what's on there. It doesn't feel, it doesn't feel bipartisan, because in your kind of community guidelines, it's it's about you know we're this is a neutral platform where everybody can feel safe and welcome, but it feels pretty imbalanced toward the right, and there's a lot of things on there where you're like, okay, anybody can say anything. But if most of your users are on one side of the spectrum, a lot of them are saying crazy stuff, then all this whole other group on the other side who will feel deeply offended or hurt or unsafe, they're like, I'm not going to go on there. So what you end up with is not this, despite what your community guidelines or the mission statement is, it doesn't end up being this neutral space. It's more of like a an echo chamber that is hostile to people on the other side of the of the spectrum. Well, so there's there's a couple of different points I'd say that. So the first is that being a neutral platform lends itself to whichever side feels less enfranchised right now, right? So if you feel that one platform is biased one way, you're going to go to the neutral platform, yeah. right? So the fact that Twitter feels overwhelmingly like it censors conservatives, right? So, you know, Twitter is often left out of this conversation, by the way, because Facebook has talked about how it encourages user user engagement basis, the most fiery articles, while Twitter doesn't, right? And so Twitter does take a subjective line as to, for example, what they're going to promote. For sure. And of course, they're banning of Donald Trump, they're banning of James Woods, they're banning of many other conservatives, illustrates that point over a prolonged period of time. So if you feel that one platform, let's talk about microblogging for a second, which is kind of the category that we fall into. Yep. If you feel that Twitter, the major microblogging site, yeah. is censoring conservatives, you're going to go and look for that other platform, which doesn't, right? So therefore, you're automatically as a platform going to draw the attention of people who feel disenfranchised by the major platform. So right now, conservatives in America and for overseas 
feel disenfranchised by the major tech platform in the microblogging space, right? So therefore, our platform has already become, you know, obviously there is to some extent an echo chamber, which grows on the back of that. And I'm aware of that. Yeah. The second thing, although to combat that, is that we encourage as many people from both sides of the aisle to come onto our platform. This is not just about encouraging one side. I'm, my outreach program is not just dedicated to trying to get, you know, the most sensational conservatives on there. I would love to have, yeah. I would love to have AOC have an account on Parler. You know, that would be fantastic. Equally, not just talking about US politics, we have a very big international user base, right? We have, you know, we have 60,000 accounts in Saudi Arabia. We have 50,000 accounts in Iran. A neutral town square doesn't just mean a neutral town square in America. It means a neutral town square overseas, which provides voice to some extent to the voiceless, or at least a place for the voiceless to speak overseas and not just in the US kind of political sphere. Right. And so when you're talking about that outreach, what does that look like? Because when I spoke with John, he had set up like a bounty program, basically being like, here's 10 grand or whatever, 50 grand for liberal personality X to come on our platform. That was his way. It was, I mean, it was a bit of a blunt instrument, but here's, here's a bunch of money come to parlor so we can have more balance. Sure. No one took him up on that. <laughs> um, but how do you, <laughs> shocker. And we talk about AOC, there's, I can't envision a world where AOC is going to go in a place that's like, as obvious, it's like mostly right slash even far right extremist like she's just going to get absolutely pilloried yeah, the moment she shows up as a gold badge. So why? Like, how do you? How do you? Yeah, I get what you're saying. How do you overcome the echo chamber? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And look, it's a hard task. And I mean, there's many different things again to say here. The first of which is we've literally just finished rebuilding the platform. You know, I mean, it was mm. it was a monumental lift. I mean, I was working over a hundred hours a week, easy, um, to try and get this platform back up and running. And it was pretty, uh, to put it charitably glitchy or just not a, as a tech product. The user interface and experience was terrible. Absolutely. Yeah. It was awful. Yeah. And we had to combat that. We had to build a product which worked. That's what we've tried to do. We now have that. I believe the basic functionality of the product is now good enough to promote it. We are obviously enhancing it the whole time. We have new product updates mm. coming out next week, right? So first of all, you have to build a product that works. You have to build a product that both sides of the aisle want to use. Second of all, yeah, you have to have some outreach instruments. We've just taken on a marketing team, right? That's the first time we've ever had a marketing operation as a business, right? We do have some influencers who stand on both sides of, you know, who, who stand more in the middle, let's call it like that, than, than stand on one side. I mean, Tulsi Gabbard, for example, is active on our platform, you know, I encourage her to use it as often as I can. I'm trying to reach out to more people. We're having some outreach into the political sphere being conducted throughout 2020. We will be extending invitations to both sides of the aisle. Um, this is not just about extending an invitation to one side. I've tried to do personal outreach to plenty of people, for example, who feel disenfranchised from social media on the back of the vaccine conversation. I think that would be interesting. Let's have a few of those people on here. You know, obviously you saw Dr. Robert Malone the other day got kicked off of Twitter he would be an interesting person to get onto social media again, mm. because I don't think that you're enriching the debate on social media by kicking people off that you don't agree with, right? So we're doing a lot more. We have a lot of marketing irons in the fire, um, and we're trying to kind of do more outreach because I appreciate that at the moment it feels one-sided. So let's get more voices in there. Let's get more conversations into that marketplace to enrich the balance of ideas. 
VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. ACAST anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider træt af alle de der podcast og forklarer meget nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel. 
hate speech is subjective. What defines hate? Hate is subjective. Like, what does that actually mean? You know, people are allowed to be offensive. Speech naturally offends. This is the whole point. Like, I, yeah. I have to be able to say things which offend other people. There isn't a world where there's safe speech. It just doesn't exist. It's not, it's, it's a meaningless term. It just means nothing, right? So you have to be able to debate ideas. And to debate ideas, you have to be able to say, you know, this is going to offend you, right? Now, in some cases, people kind of go beyond that and, you know, start to just troll people and start to kind of deliberately fire things up, use, you know, racist terminology, which is obviously not adding anything to the debate at all. That will go behind a troll filter. So what goes in front or behind a troll filter? Is that subjective or is that determined by AI? No, no. We put that into the AI systems. Right. But I think this this question of hate speech is really interesting because that was one of the things I took away from my discussion with John uh, whenever it was a year and a half ago was, you know, he's saying hate speech is free speech. But of course, if you go to a place like Germany, hate speech is not free speech. They have a law specifically outlawing hate speech. It's defined very clearly. And, you know, there are obviously very good historical reasons why hate speech is outlawed because, you know, there's a, there's a, and I guess the question that it comes down to for Parler and for Twitter and for Facebook is where do you draw the line between my freedom to say anything I want and the freedom of everybody else listening to be like, whoa, that's scary to me. That makes me feel unsafe. That makes me feel like this is a really hostile place. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, so there does, so it's a question of like, where do you put that slider on the scale? And it feels like you guys want the slider all the way to one side. Is that right? I want to permit the maximum allowable amount of speech. I think you've you kind of wrapped up into a paragraph a lot of what constitutes the modern debate. And I think that's, it's, somebody has to make a decision at some point, right? Somebody somewhere has to make that decision, right? Correct. That subjective decision as to what is and isn't hate speech, right? One of, call it hate speech for one of a better term. But as soon as you start to put yourself into that position, you have become God and you've become very powerful, right? And that's what I'm frightened of. And I think that's what a lot of people are frightened of because unfortunately the gods of this world change, right? Public opinion, the mob, whatever you want to call it, government control, right? Changes and areas and, and periods of history where we have delegated to governments or abnegated our responsibility as a society in favor of governments has led almost certainly to genocide, right? Or at least to massive portions of the population being in some form human suffering. You know, look, I hear what you're saying. If nobody wants to just sit in a room and be pilloried with offensive content, yeah. nobody wants that. And of course, that's not what we want either. And at no point do I think that's remotely desirable. But at the same time, I also don't want to set myself up as to be the arbiter of what people can and cannot say, because as soon as you do that, I've put myself into that position where I then begin this very dangerous path down mm -hmm. the road towards destruction. And, you know, I mean, of course, to take a literary example, you know, you read, you know, there are many science fiction books or, you know, 1984, of course, you know, where the manipulation of speech becomes a huge part of government's control, right? And that is hugely powerful. Newspeak, you know, you need to rewrite language in your own image so that people have words to use. Language is inherently offensive. Shakespeare appreciated that. 
you know, he utilized that to his effect in, in the theater. And, and yeah. you know, the English language is a rich tapestry of language. It would be wonderful if we could use its full vocabulary instead of which we, you know, offensive content is boiled down to a few clear phrases. Now, does that mean that I should be the arbiter of what is and isn't? No, I shouldn't. And on the flip side of that, you know, kind of flipping the argument on its head a little bit, there have been plenty of situations in history where, okay, at the moment, people are saying, well, you know, your platform is an echo chamber for the right. I would like to think that in Franco Spain or some equally other dictatorial society where, you know, the right was in control, we would have allowed a platform to the left to speak because, you know, mm-hmm. they would have been the voices at those particular moments. There, there's no necessity for one side to have that monopoly on free speech. It should be both sides. I know, but I think we're in danger of talking in circles here, but it gets back to this idea of this grievance that, you know, conservative voices are muzzled when, you know, something like Fox News is the single most powerful kind of media entity by many measures in America. Well, let's pursue this line for a little bit because, okay. because you know, it's a frequent topic, which I have to talk about. So I'm sure you're I mean, sure. <laughs> I mean, voices on the right, which have been censored or shut down, yeah. right? especially in terms of Twitter, for example, right? Look at Twitter. Yeah. It is highly unusual that a sitting president's personal Twitter account, I'm not his government account, but his personal Twitter account was suspended. It's also highly unusual that yes. a personal Twitter account of a sitting Republican congresswoman was suspended. It's also highly unusual for a fact that Republican candidates who are considered to be controversial have had their Twitter accounts suspended. And even when they ran for office, were not allowed to have them reinstated. All of these are living examples. These people are still around to this day. I can think of no one on the other side of the aisle, for example, who fit in that similar category. There is, there is not a single Democrat Congress person who has had their account suspended whilst in office at a personal level. Of course, they're still allowed their congressional mm-hmm. account. Nor has there been a sitting candidate for the Democrat side, as far as I'm aware. I could be wrong. I'm happy to be corrected mm-hmm. if you know any instances. But I don't know a single Democrat candidate who has had their personal account or um, campaign account not reinstated or allowed during a congressional runoff, right? I can't think of a single one. So from those instances, for example, just those three examples, I'm still waiting for someone to say, okay, you know what, here are the list of examples on the left, which also apply. I'm just using that as an example because I feel that there is a lot of sort of studies which show, but when you look at the blinding evidence in front of you, it's like, well, hang on a sec. Okay, these studies say this, right? And I've looked at those studies. I've looked at Pew Research. I've looked at many of the studies which have come out, which talk about, you know, the different feelings, which, uh, you know, or the different content which has been censored on left and right. And then you've looked at the evidence in terms of the major names who have suffered censorship. And nearly all of those, as far as I can see, are on the right. There are, of course, some on the left. I'm not denying that. But the major ones seem to be on the right. So there's a couple things I would say to that, that, you know, in this context, I think are interesting. One is this, uh, this idea of the personal account. It was Donald Trump's choice, and I think it was a business decision, to use his personal account as a president, which had no precedent before. While you're in office, you keep your personal account, and all of a sudden you have 100 million followers to whom you can sell Trump stakes and Trump University and, you know, whatever else after your office. So it's a question of, I'm out here in Silicon Valley, there is currency, real hard money in the amount of followers you have. And if you can use the office to build your personal account, 
that is a very savvy business decision, which he made. And so this idea of like, well, it's his personal account. That's not fair. Well, like he chose to use it for his purposes as the president. The only other thing I would say on this, this idea of censorship is that he's not censored. He has the red phone, you know, directly into Sean Hannity or anybody else at Fox News. He's on all the time. He has his own website. He can scream from the mountaintops. The difference is, it's like, you know, it's like, um, you know, somebody on Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park. Yeah. Anybody can get up there and say any kind of crazy nonsense and people can kind of choose to stop and listen or they can keep walking. So here's my rebuttal of those two points. Okay. So obviously when it came to personal versus governmental accounts, I think that's a very interesting topic. I don't have a strong opinion about that, to be honest. And most people continue to use their personal accounts in some capacity after they become elected, right? Now that's applicable to the left and to the right. There are many politicians on the left Mm -hmm. who continue to use their personal accounts. There are many politicians on the right who continue to use their personal accounts. So whilst I appreciate what you're saying, and I know the truth of it, because, you know, being a tech CEO, I can see the fact that there is massive currency, obviously, in your followers. It's not unprecedented or unusual for him to have continued to use his personal account whilst he's in office. And there are many politicians who do that in the UK, in America. For sure. Right? Yep. So that was the medium that he chose. Correct. That he chose. Yep, absolutely. As do many politicians. And when they did censor him, when they did shut off his personal account, he did switch for those remaining few days in office to his governmental account, which was great. But for him to be able to get his voice out. But at the same time, it was clearly his main following was elicited through his personal account, right? Now, in terms of sort of how does he have a voice now? And I think that's a far more interesting question. Mm. You started to, you know, mine the deep vein of of sort of (laughs) where does the power of modern media gain its power, right? Uh Does modern media gain its power from traditional mediums. No, of course it doesn't. Like, you know, how many people watch cable news now? I mean, I don't even have a cable subscription. Most of my generation, most of our generation, to some extent, mm-hmm. I don't know how old you are, but, you know, I, I can't imagine you're that old. Um, I'm 25. Yeah, exactly. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sensible. Yeah. Great answer. Great answer. I'm always 21. I'm always 21. Yeah, exactly. um, but most of our generation don't yeah. use traditional mediums. So, Yes, Trump has a voice. Of course, he does by going onto his website and he did the blog for a while and, you know, he phones into Hannity and he does Tucker. But does he have a medium to communicate to a much, much larger audience which uses, you know, the new methodology of communication? No, he doesn't, right? And obviously, for example, like Fox News, it's not available in the UK, right? So if you want Trump on TV, you have to watch Nigel interviewing him on GB News, or you know you can't, or you don't get anything at all. So yes, he still has a voice, but it's a bit like saying you know anyone can climb Everest. It's like yeah, anyone can climb Everest. It's just a massive effort to do so, but it's much easier to get there in a helicopter. You know, it's just like it's kind of like how do you how do you get to the top? Well, you can either climb it the old-fashioned way, or you can just go up in a helicopter. Well, that's easy. But that's the other thing that I think is really interesting. And uh, and you guys aren't the first to say, you know, we're all about free speech. I mean, Twitter back in the days used to call themselves the free speech wing of the free speech party. Um, <laughs> but the uh, this whole idea that like, you know, founding a company on free speech or, you know, the protection of the First, Am- the first Amendment, the First Amendment was really about keeping government from restricting free speech. A private company is, you know, and I always think of whenever these difficult decisions come up 
it's, you know, no shoes, no shirt, no service. The sign that used to be in California. It's like, we have our terms. If you're going to incite a mob, for example, maybe we don't want that on our platform. Maybe that's bad for business. So you're off. And look, to be absolutely clear, Twitter as a private company are allowed to do what they want. Yeah. It's private property. Well, it's publicly as a traded company. They, they can make decisions. Corporates make decisions every day to, for sure. to do things yeah. and they are allowed to do it. What they're not allowed to do, and this is where the difference falls in the US particularly, mm. is claim immunity under Section 230 from the kind mm. of public sphere. Section 230, right? yes, yes. This yes. is the crossover yeah. point because, and this is kind of like, yeah. this is where it becomes much more confusing. Yes, and just to pause before you go on, Section 230, most people who listen to this podcast know what it is, but it's this shield for any platform, any social media company to basically shield them from liability for anything that shows up on their platform because they're a platform, not a publisher in the eyes of the law. Correct. Yeah. So it's this shield, this immunity shield that has really fueled the rise of social media. And one would argue, or one could argue that the shield, which is provided by Section 230 is predicated on the basis that you're a platform, not a publisher, right? I mean, that is the basis for that immunity. Yeah. Now, Twitter over the course of many years, you know, does one action indicate a total subjectivity? No, it doesn't. But does a sustained like pathway of subjective decisions made over the course of several years indicate a direction of travel? I would argue yes it does, right? I mean sure. And okay. and and to some extent like, you know, this is the kind of cognitive dissidence that one can see going through the heads of both the Congress people, but also the tech CEOs as they testify on Capitol Hill, you know, you've got the tech CEO standing there saying, we are a platform, not a publisher. Yeah. And then 20 minutes later, they've got someone from their marketing or policy team coming out and saying, you know, we do not agree with this. We do not stand for this. Where it's like, how can you not see the mental gymnastics you're having to conduct to get from we're a platform, not a publisher to suddenly saying, we do not agree with this, right? That, you've crossed that Rubicon. You've not just crossed it once. You're going back and forth. You built a bridge over the river and you're crossing back and forth whenever you want it. So mm-hmm. as a result, that Section 230, which they shield themselves with, is not applicable to those companies, which is fine. Yeah, just to be clear, they can make that decision as a private business, but they shouldn't be allowed the immunity under Section 230 unless you truly say, we are a platform. And this is kind of what I was saying to the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, which is that, you know, Kara Swisher was saying, you sound very much like Zuckerberg. I'm not a... You don't want to be the arbiter of truth is his, is his line. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Apart from, as I also said at the time, Facebook is making those kind of decisions the whole time. And they have even said they're making those decisions, right? And, you know, they are banning billions of accounts. I mean, on the same... Billions. I don't think that's right. Look it up, Forbes. I'll, I'll send you the link after this. Please do. Facebook banned 1.3 billion accounts in a quarter. And I will send you the link to that article because it's 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 good reading. So so this is really interesting. So I guess this gets to the question of back to like where we started, which is you are making those decisions too. So you ban pornography, you ban spam bots, you ban like I'm a spammer. I could argue this is my freedom of speech, my freedom of expression, you know, whatever, or pornography or all the horrible things that you guys have banned. Those are all decisions too. Again, just it's really the question of, it seems to me that you guys just want to set your kind of sliding scale in a different place than the rest of social media, which by the way, Facebook is the dumpster fire. 
in terms of like the stuff on there. So is Twitter. It just feels like you're much smaller at the moment, but it feels like if if it's a really no holds barred situation, what it's going to end up being is just like a dumpster fire on top of a dumpster fire rolling down a mountain into another flaming dumpster. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just processed that. It's kind of a, a bit of a mind on that one. A dumpster fire rolling down a dumpster fire into another dumpster fire. I almost confused myself. Yeah, it's a lot of dumpsters on fire. Um, yeah. So look, you know, come back to your point. What do our guidelines outline on the platform? So mm. you are not just allowed to put pornography on the internet without warning, right? Mm. That's the law. You can't just have free porn everywhere. You're not allowed to say, I'm going to kill somebody on the internet, right? I know for a fact that people I know have had threats, very serious threats online, which have then had to be investigated by law enforcement. You cannot place direct threats, naming people and places online in a public forum. It's not allowed, right? Yeah. You also can't conduct fraud on the internet, right? So you can't do IP fraud, right? Intellectual property fraud, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you can't dox people. You can't reveal their address online. This is where there is case law and there is clear guidelines outlined by law enforcement in relation to what you can and cannot put out online. We have tried to pin ourselves as closely to those as possible to remove that element of subjectivity from our own decision-making process, right? Mm-hmm. Pornography is a clear example, right? There's masses of precedent law around this. Therefore, the decision has been taken away from us. I don't, I'm very pleased I don't have to make that decision, right? Yeah. Violence, there's very clear precedents around it. Like you can't name times and places you're going to kill somebody, you know, let alone politicians. There's precedent around it. We pin ourselves to that. We follow that guideline. All of those guidelines have become our guidelines, right? And that's why we basically say, okay, this is what we believe is permissible. The maximum allowable, permissible free speech, here you go, right? And so people then are free beyond that to say what they want. So I want to, on the zero to 100 soundbar, you know, I'm trying to place the slider as close to... To 100. Well, yeah, exactly. To whichever end of the soundbar you call maximum allowable permissible free speech. Yeah. I'm trying turn to it out. It You want to turn it up to 11. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I just want to give people a forum, right? I mean, that's that's really what we're trying to do. We're not... And I think, I think your challenge, obviously, you know as well, is just like you know, right now this forum is very one-sided. And, you know, for people who are coming in on, on the other side, it, it's going to feel pretty unwelcoming and people aren't going to stay. And as a business, I think that's the challenge. Look, I mean, you know, candidly, you don't just want a forum, for example, which is all about politics, right? And that's something that we are trying to build out. So, you know, is there cultural engagement, which people can feel identity with? Is there sports engagement, which people can feel identity with? We're trying to develop all of these channels on the platform so that people have a Mm. lot more. I don't just want to be a, you know, you need to have, I mean, I think there's an expression kind of in, in the valley a little bit, which is that you need to have the kittens as well as the killer content. You know, you need to have both kind of thing. Yeah. I want to have the puppies and the kittens on the platform so people can talk about them as much as you want to have, you know, the fire breathing um, fire brands, to use that expression, on the platform too. So you want to have everything in between, but people need to feel like there's a community they can buy into. So I totally get that. And that's what we're trying to encourage and build out. And there are product enhancements you can offer to people to make them feel more included, such as, you know, have you looked at this thing about music, for example? I mean, there are many people who work at Parlor who post really good content about photography or about music or about sports we have some active sports channels on the platform you know all of that stuff is there to try and encourage i get a lot of my sports news from the platform 
you know, I'm a Chelsea fan. So it's like, you know, I, I was Arsenal. Well, I don't stop following, but I used to be an Arsenal fan okay. when I was I was living in North London. <laughs> of course, the library, as it's called, yeah. Anyway, of course, exactly. Exactly. library, library. Yeah, exactly. um, just crystal ball going out five years. If everything goes swimmingly from today, what is Parler then? I don't know if there's a goal in terms of users, you know, the size of the company, what it looks like, its role in society, or the conversation. Kind of how do you see this developing from where you are right now, which is, you know, you're a very small fish in a very big pond yeah. right now yeah. and a fish of a, of a certain stripe, let's say. The unusual tropical fish swimming in the North Sea. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we didn't really talk about, you know, the NFT side of the business. Oh, Melania Trump's NFTs. Yeah. So we launched that in December. And- which she, she's, she's selling those exclusively through Parler? No, she's selling it on MelaniaTrump.com. Right. Okay. But Parler helped build the entire infrastructure and the back end behind that. I see. Right. And we're planning on doing more in that sphere, in that field. Um, we're moving into that space, which I think is a very interesting one. That fits with our mission, which has basically been to to move ourselves away from big tech, you know, as I said earlier, like no company has sort of been more unfairly pilloried by big tech than Parler to some extent. And so on the back of that, like if we can embrace a style of technology that doesn't require the traditional gatekeepers, then we welcome that, right? Parler welcomes that. So we're we're doing more and more on Web3. We want to do more and more on Web3. We want to do more in the crypto sphere as a whole. So what does Parler look like in five years? It looks like it's a much bigger platform. We already have 16 million accounts. There's The user count is obviously less than that because not every account uses it every day. But we want to be you know, a multi-million user company. We want to be a company which offers a space for creators to empower themselves. That could mean through gamification of the platform, which we're looking at very actively. That could be the NFT space, which we are already involved in. That could be what I'm terming kind of a crypto social app. Like, could we combine some form of cryptography or blockchain development with the social app side of the business? I think that's could be that could be a very interesting area. You know, Facebook have sort of made an announcement that they're investing a lot of money in that space. Um, we are David to their Goliath. We're not even David. We're the pebble in David's sling yeah. versus uh, Goliath. But you know, we we do have some good uh, irons in the fire there, and we've got some great people working for us already who are who are experts in that field. What does that mean? I think in five years' time, we're going to be a huge platform. We're going to have a lot more users than we currently have. We're going to be deep in this NFT space, and we're going to be deep in the crypto world. And I think we're going to try and combine those two, the social app and the crypto world. And we will still stand in contrast in terms of the content to the rest of social media, Right. just to be clear. You'll stand in contrast in terms of your content policies. Correct. Presumably, you're hoping you don't still stand in contrast in terms of just the content or the kind of political correct kind of shade of it correct yeah you know i've said this before but i feel like the principles i mean you mentioned twitter the free speech wing of the free speech party i mean that is it's so ironic to hear you say that because the company could not be further from that right now and you know they could not have gone more down a rabbit hole right now and you know that's kind of like I want to say a debate which society as a whole has to have, you know, like, yes, I agree. To what extent does free speech kill itself? Is it always just this virtuous death cycle of free speech? When you allow maximum free speech, does it always end up destroying itself? Because you get these ridiculous opinions, which then start sprouting out of free speech. So you have to restrict speech. You know, it's a kind of like a chicken and egg argument, but Twitter could not be further from that. And I want to be, I want to try and take, 
you know, strain the essence of what that was back in 2005, six and seven, when these companies were started and, and hold true to those visions mm-hmm. and values. Let's assume for a moment you get to the promised land, you get to be a very big scale platform. I think just the way you are set up is going to make your life in a way potentially even more difficult than it is for Twitter's because Twitter, I don't think anybody, you'll find anybody who can like really with a straight face defend their policies around who gets on, who gets off. It's kind of all over the place. It seems often reactive, inconsistent, all of that stuff. But if you continue to get bigger and bigger, and a lot of these, let's call them more fringe ideas that are free to circulate on your platform that others are trying to be like, whoa, maybe we should kind of rein those back in. If those lead to some kind of real world incident or something happens that can be traced back to ideas that are circulating on your platform or gaining kind of real traction there, you're going to be right back where you started. I guess my point is, there's a commentator I I talk to often about tech. And he was saying, you know, like back at the beginning of Facebook, it was like, cool, we can get like a million people on the internet. And then 10 years later, it was like, oh my God, we have a billion people on the internet. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like, oh shit, there's so many like people here and everybody's different and every crazy and loon and fringe person can find their tribe and kind of organize and do all this stuff. And it's like, these are very difficult problems. And right now you're, you're 16 million people. It's relatively small, but as you get bigger and bigger and you're basically no holds barred, I feel like it would only be a matter of time if you get get successful and get big, that you're going to run into some very, very difficult situations that can put you in a place where Twitter starts as the free speech ring of the free speech party. Then they have 300 million users. And it's like, Oh, this is a mess. We have to kind of try to figure out how to do this, even if it's like deeply imperfect and um, problematic. Well, look, I mean, I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but my point at the same time is, is the internet a good or bad thing? I guess really is what you're asking. (laughs) Is the internet a good or bad thing? It's like, do people have a right to think for themselves? Do people have a right to organize for themselves? I mean, yeah, I I think they do. I mean, I I, I don't think government, I mean, kind of reversing the role of that would be to say, well, you know what, like, we actually have to shut down all these things, you know, and that, I don't think that that's profitable or, or helpful to the debate. Um, lastly, before I let you go, are you worried about Trump's new social media endeavor? Because obviously he's he has a serious gravitational pull, and I think it's called Truth Social. If that gets up off the ground and, you know, is actually a real thing, that feels like that could suck a lot of the oxygen out of the room. Well, we are the only alternative social media platform with a crypto offering and building out this crypto part of our business, which I think is exciting. So that differentiates us. And from what I can see, they've done a deal with Rumble, which seems to be focused on video distribution. I think that they are potentially looking to challenge the Netflix model, as well as maybe the Twitter model. And I think that that holds a lot of fruit and a lot of rewards. Um, So, I have yet to see really what the product offering is, to be honest. Um, you know, yeah. There's a lot of talk about it. There hasn't yet been a huge amount of release. So, you know, I kind of reserving judgment until that point. But as I said, it looks like from what they're offering already, it's more in the video distribution service. It could be. Right, 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 right. We shall see. We shall see. Cool. Well, look, um, thank you for taking the time. Thanks, Danny. It's been great to talk. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank George for taking the time. I want to thank you all for listening and for the ratings and the reviews and telling your friends 
and everything else just tuning in i really appreciate it i hope you guys enjoyed this week and you're staying safe and you know omicron free hopefully we are near the end please of this pandemic i will be writing about parlor based on the interview i had with george in this weekend sunday time so do check that out we'll also be doing maybe something a little bit on microsoft's attempt to kind of create it turn itself into the netflix of gaming with this big activision deal so lots to write about there so please do check that out leave the ratings leave the reviews tell your friends tell your neighbors about danny in the valley and how it's just made your life better because that's what it's, it's done hasn't it anyhow that is it for me have a fabulous weekend and we'll talk to you next week helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.